Welcome to the Software Lifecycle Stories podcast. We bring you stories of what worked and sometimes what did not in the course of discovering, designing, developing, delivering and using software-based solutions as shared by practitioners who went through these situations. Paramu Kurumathur, my guest today, has been in the IT industry for over 38 years. He has held various positions including that of a worldwide CIO. Of late, he has been authoring various books with one already published on project management, another fiction about to be published and he is working on two more. In this freewheeling conversation, he shares a lot of his perspectives and experience in the industry. Listen on. Hi Paramu. Hi Shiv how are you good i think it's a little uh, strange that na, we are in a semi formal kind of discussion uh, we've known each other for a long time and uh, i'm hoping that there will be some new things that i will also learn about uh, what you have been uh, doing in the software industry so for the benefit of our listeners can you start with a brief introduction of yourself Okay okay uh, my name is paramu full name is paramu kurumathu right i have been working in this industry for about 38 years now i have a masters degree in computer science and technology uh, and i worked in about 1 uh, 2 3 about 4 um, 1 2 3 4 5 organizations now this is my fifth organization right and i worked in various roles like uh, Uh, software developer to project manager line of business manager uh, skills development manager regional software services manager uh, i worked as i have set up an offshore development center for a very large uh, multinational uh, computer company right? and i have run run that as a general manager for about 4 or 5 years i've also dabbled in setting up my own company Uh, funded by some industrialists from calcutta and i ran that for about 3 uh, or 4 years uh, of course that was during the dot com bust period so it, the performance was generally average so i left that and after that i joined the international ngo as its cio which i did for about 11 years after that i i joined this current organization pm power uh, and i've been with pm power for the last 5 years so this has been my my experience so i worked on uh, uh, i've been a ceo i've been a cio i've been a i've been a developer i've been a project manager so i worked in various roles uh, in, in this industry and in various types of companies so that's my experience wow that makes you an ideal guest for the software life cycle stories that we want to look at pretty much all aspects related to software from the conception to delivery to usage and all that so a few things that kind of stand out is that uh, now you have not only been on the production side but also in trying to sell in trying to solve problems so let me start with uh, i have a lot of questions with at least uh, the first one and in all your roles and over the years 
how do you see the whole process of developing software changing <laughs> it's quite interesting uh, see the first project i did was for a, uh, a very large construction company in, in in orange county in the us right and i i did some work doing cobol project or uh, product development right and uh, those days we didn't have these rigorous approaches and methodologies to software development somebody came and told me hey do this so we did it right and these are very large programs that we were developing right so i remember one day this lady who was a business analyst she came to me and said paramo uh, can you make this change in in the production system uh, some some small change i no problem uh, but in the evening of that day she came back and said oh no no don't make the change but then i told her look i've already made the change and the change is in production right so so oh, okay then let the change be so, so those days we didn't have this very rigorous approaches so That's it is also like devops kind of uh, <laughs> development somebody told you to do something so change was made almost immediately and then put into production there was continuous integration continuous value delivery those days right then we came into this uh, very rigorous waterfall approaches i right? so we have to have i remember in the second and third projects we have, we used to have these very large requirement definition phase once the requirement definition is over we had a large design phase you know a, a general design then a detailed design all these design phases then we had a, a, a actual coding phase then a testing phase and then there was you know, some quality testing all that kind of stuff so we went through all these uh, different stages and the the user saw the benefits of the whole development at the very end and and if there was a change in between we had to go through these uh, laborious change process like oh you had to make the changes in the in the requirements in the design in the detailed design in the code in the test uh, test cases and then make sure that everything is working so this is the whole initially when we started there was nothing but a, a quick change approach everything changed to a very rigorous uh, 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 rigorous uh, formal approaches now we are back into agile which again says make quick changes make sure that you are able to uh, uh, deliver continuous value to the customer so, so and, and embrace change and i remember in the second phase we we would frown on changes so somebody came and told you make the same we'd say no we can't right so i think the whole uh, you know the cycle has gone through a it's, everything is cyclic they say in the universe everything is cyclic so this thing also has gone through a, a the third phase now no i don't know maybe after 20 years agile may change and we'll go back to a very rigorous definition phase we don't know so this is what i have seen over the years of working in this in this industry Mm, that's interesting. Uh, so, as uh, a person who has played these multiple roles, and also having seen some of these, let's say the not so formal, formal, as well as the more agile approaches and so on, in addition to let's say the technical qualities or technical skills that one needs, what do you think would be needed for someone to be successful, and also say grow in career okay each person might have a different aspiration either be completely technical or you know like you have been a major influencer of 
outcomes you know, in your global NGO role. What are some of the softer aspects that one needs to master? Okay, see, some of the softer aspects. I remember when I was working in this NGO, most of the users are fairly clueless about what what is needed to develop a software system, right? I mean, we we had about forty countries in, in I had about forty countries in my ambit, right? And most of the country directors or most of the uh, directors of, of the international uh, organization, uh, they were fairly clueless about what software development is. All they knew is that, oh, I'll give you some requirements, you have to develop a database. They called it a database, right? So they didn't call it a system, they called it a database, right? So, for example, I remember uh, one of the users who was the head of HR of, of the NGO International he came to me and said that he wanted to develop a system for, for something. I forgot what it was. So I, I uh, did a quick uh, estimate and told him it'll take three months. So he said, three months? My son can do it in one day. My son is every day doing software development, you know, in using Excel and in a quick basic and, you know, he's doing things so fast. This small system, he'll do it in one day, right? So I told him, okay, then you get it done by your son. No, but actually, the, the, the real, the funny thing was that he didn't really know what it takes for software to be developed. All he thought was, you know, do, do some coding and that's it, right? So, uh, so I had to kind of educate him about the whole process of software development, how, you know, maintainability, how it has to be used, testing, you know, design, all those aspects. So, and how it should all fit finally into the overall architecture of, of the organization. So, uh, yeah, he, he was fairly true. So it took a long time for me to actually make some of these people understand, right, what software development is all about, right? And I remember when, uh, after I joined this organization, I went for some uh, country directors meeting. And their idea of IT was really fixing computers, Right. Oh, okay. So, so I, I remember one, one, one country director came to me and said, Oh, you are the big IT boss. Can you fix my computer for me? Right. So, uh, so their whole concept of IT was fixing computers. So, so the, the, one of the first things I had to do when I joined this organization was to create an, uh, a, an international IT strategy for the whole organization. Right. Which then really explained what it means to actually have a, a software uh, architecture for the whole organization and how to develop systems, how to take legacy systems and then plug them into the existing architecture and how to change certain things, right? And, and this organization was dependent very heavily on uh, something called child sponsorship, right? So, uh, so you, individuals would sponsor a child and give some money to their organization in the name of the child. Okay. So this whole child sponsorship system uh, was spanning all the countries, maybe about 36 or so of these 40 countries where child sponsorship was active, right? So to have such a system developed, right? And making sure that everybody's in agreement with the, the provisions of the system, that, that again took a long, very long time. And uh, one of the key problems there was if you went to a country like a small country like Botswana, the connectivity was very poor, right? Many of the African countries, the connectivity is very, very poor. So many of these online systems, 
could not actually work well. So the other that is another learning that sometimes you need to have offline versions of these systems just so that they could enter the data whenever they could and then connect it at night or something to send it into the main system. So you know these are some of the learnings and these are some of the things that you had to influence the country directors and others to get things implemented. I'm sure it must have been a very challenging thing to create this global architecture. But then from a cultural point of view, the reason I'm asking <laughs> is um, I remember in one of the projects that uh, I was involved with that um, the hierarchical nature of organizations in Japan, for example, made the software kind of unusable because the software let a deputy or an admin to manage, let's say, the boss's calendar. So did you have any instances where these cross-geo or a cross-country kind of cultural differences had to be taken into account when you deployed these global solutions? Uh, not as much as, you know, the difference between Japanese and cultures and, and uh, Western cultures. Because if this NGO was based in, in, in it's a London based or a UK based NGO, right? It's a British NGO, right? And therefore, most of the countries we operated in were British uh, influenced countries, right? Of our Anglophone countries. But of course, there were certain countries which are not. And there we had a problem. For example, uh, uh, you know, if you there were countries like Mozambique, Angola, which had Portuguese, or Guinea-Bissau, right? Uh, Brazil had Portuguese, and many Spanish countries in the in the Latin American region, right? And it's very interesting. Some cultural things, uh, you know, <laughs> where some people felt that they were actually uh, uh, discriminated against yeah? by English imposition. For example, I remember the country director of. Uh, uh, Guatemala, right? He, he told me, hey, look, uh, wh why can't we have these things in Spanish? Why is this in English, right? And, uh, sorry, this is not Guatemala, this is Peru, right? Why can't it be in Spanish and not in English? Then uh, I said, yeah, we can try to do things in Spanish and then kind of uh, had some preliminary discussions with him. Later on, I was talking to him about local languages in that region. And one of the languages is Quechua. So I asked him, do you do some of your uh, discussions, etc., in, in, in the local language? He said, no, 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 Spanish is enough. Right? So basically for him, uh, not uh, learning the local language, but doing things in Spanish was not an imposition. But English coming on to, on to him was, was an imposition. So, you know, so people had very interesting things about how you feel... Uh, discriminated against, but you don't feel the discrimination you're doing to the others, right? So that's as a straight, that's a something that I learned, saying that, oh my God, you know, you have to be very careful about, I mean, you feel the victim in certain cases, but you don't feel when you are victimizing others, right? So that's one cultural thing. And of course, the other thing that in, in, in our organization, which I encouraged, right, was, for example, in, in, in when people wrote, uh, uh, wrote, say, uh, documents. I was of the opinion that we should let people write documents the way they want to write for, and not actually uh, edit their English. So a person from Nigeria would have a certain kind of English. 
the person Botswana, another kind of English, right? And of course, when you look at it from a British point of view, you will find that the English is not very, uh, very accurate. Right? There were grammar mistakes, spelling mistakes. But I said, that's fine. This diversity is fine. Yeah? You should be able to handle different kinds of Englishes like you can angle, handle different kinds of uh, languages. So that is another cultural uh, thing that I found. The other thing that I found was to, to influence if, uh, if one, many a time there's a lot of politics between international and countries, between countries, between regions and countries. So one of the things that I found was that if you can get a couple of those country directors on your side, then they can then form the form your uh, uh, bulkhead or your you know the <laughs> your bridgehead for uh, for uh, introducing some of these technologies in the other countries. So yeah, these are some of the cultural things I think I found uh, when I when I was working in these countries. Mm. Yeah, talking of languages, I know that you have a passion for languages, and uh, in some other conversations you have a very nice way of uh, comparing languages or going to the etymology and then trying to derive some similarities and all that. So with respect to software development, uh, do you think that there is something to learn for uh, particularly designers to abstract or find these patterns and solve for those patterns rather than do a point solution? Yeah. Are you talking about uh, uh, in, in, in any context, can you look for patterns like you look for patterns and languages? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I see you doing very naturally. You know, in talking <laughs> about languages, you are able to compare the origins saying these are similar. These are the reasons why some variations are there and all that. Right. So many times we find that uh, you know, the thinking between project and product no, particularly uh, in Bangalore being a startup uh, hub. Right. Solve you know, problems in a more generic way or create platforms rather than programs. Right. right. So when one has to do that, uh, are there things that we can learn from these kinds of disciplines like linguistics that will help you know, people learn solving problems in a more generic way? I've not really thought about this. It's, it's a very interesting approach. In, in fact, you know, I'm just, just when you talked of this, I was just thinking of Miss Marple, you know, you know, uh, uh, Agatha Christie's character. Yeah. The way she solved uh, crime was by comparing the, the, the psychology of the, uh, of the characters in, in, in the current story with the psychology of the characters in, in another story, right? Or oh, in oh, this particular okay. uh, situation she was like her and she behaved this way and therefore this person could be the killer kind of thing you know so it, it, you're, you're asking of that kind of a, a pattern i haven't really thought of that for uh, for uh, software uh, uh, or, 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 or requirements in in, in 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 the industry but maybe you know you're right maybe like we could actually do such a thing right we could actually think of uh, finding patterns between different kinds of, in fact, that's already been done, I suppose, you know, for example, you will find that uh, uh, even terminologies used in, in the software industry are very like terminologies in some of the other industries in the old, in the, in the industrial era industries, 
except that the whole concept has changed. So patterns have been taken from here and and bound here. But I don't know whether we, in the development of systems we have actually applied. Or I have not really thought of applying these patterns. That's a good idea. I, 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 maybe you know, I, we can think about it. Yeah. Okay. Continuing on the same, the language and communication bit. You know, one of the areas where um, invariably errors creep in is in either specifying it, things right or in interpreting those specifications and creating solutions. Right. Now, uh, with your uh, expertise in being a communicator, you know, as right. an author, writer and all that, uh, how do you make sure that if you are describing a scene, for example, that the minute details are not missed out? Or when you are defining a character, you know, what kind of behavior or what kind of interactions and so on, which can probably be useful for someone, let's say, gathering requirements or modeling a problem area and in communicating with the others who are involved in the software development. If you went back to, for example, writing a novel, right? Now, uh, see, one of the first things they teach you when people teach you how to write a novel is you have to take a character and then look at the character and then try to, even if some of these aspects do not come out in a novel, you should internalize that character completely, right? Knowing, you know, what is the character's childhood background? What are some of the scenes that he did when he was a child, right? So, uh, so, so, so that slowly, even within your own mind, you can actually build that character up, right? So that the character, be, uh, in a character behaves to character, you know, later on, right? And uh, they also say that if something if some character behaves out of character, you know that there is, you can look for a clue of some, some wrongdoing or some, you know, it's a clue that that person could be a, a dangerous fellow, right? So, so right in the beginning, you have to figure out uh, uh, the, 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 the basics of that character. Similarly, in software development also, I suppose, you have to, for any requirement, for any, any feature, I said, you need to know the, the, the full, the full uh, aspects of that feature, right? If you're doing, say, agile development, a, a feature that uh, the customer wants implemented, right? If the development people know the, the, how the feature fits into the big picture of the whole system, that makes it easy. And also why the feature is and where the idea of the feature come from. So we know all those things, right? then I think it's much easier to develop that feature. It, it, that is, if the, the developers understand that feature very well, it's much easier to develop it. The, just like writing. So even though if some of the aspects of that feature does not come out in, in the actual uh, uh, final delivery, right? even then if you knew some of the, the basic needs of the feature, it will be good. So this is like uh, writing a character in a, in, in a book, right? So this is one of the key uh, uh, similarities that I, I found in this in this uh, in this thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really useful because I hear teams using you know, techniques they call as uh, personas. Right. But then the persona seems more static and based on assumptions 
But I think that can be a lot more richer if, like you said, we can go into the character of that persona and maybe some background and stuff like that. Uh, because many times you also find that um, the intended use and the actual use and how it is used, you know, could vary. Right, right. Yeah. So right. Have, have you had uh, any instances where, uh, like your uh, manufacturing company example that you gave, where things kind of changed even during the day, that uh, you plan a global rollout, you do things and suddenly I say that, no, maybe this is not what we should be doing. I remember once developing a software for a for an organization. This was a a, a a screen print company somewhere in California, right? So we de- developed a large software for them. It's I think some kind of accounting software, right? And by the time we finished developing, we found that the uh, the person who was in charge of that development with the customer he had left the organization, right? And it was he who was actually Pushing for this, uh, for the pushing this particular requirement of this accounting system, right? Uh, I mean, he said that we can get rid of the old system, have a new one. So when this guy left, suddenly the need for the system just vanished, right? Oh. right? And uh, I remember the whole system that we developed, uh, and I, I, I'm sure you remember when we developed this. You were also a project manager then in another in another project. You know, we spent nights and days developing the system. And finally, it was the whole thing was uh, cut onto a tape and given to the customer. The customer gave us our, our money, everything done, and then he never used it, right? So mm-hmm. this is something which <laughs> sometimes for a developer uh, and uh, uh, for, 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 for anyone associated with the project, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big letdown. Of course, we got, as an organization, as a developing organization, development organization, we got our money and it was successful from our point of view. But we are not very sure from uh, what the what the final outcome was, right? And I suppose, therefore, I think we need to figure out as development organizations, we need to also know what the final uh, use of that system is. Yeah? And if the final use of the system is clearly known, then I think we'll be uh, much better at developing systems. And of course, if we also know the politics, it'll be much easier. If, for example, our uh, the marketing or the salesperson on the ground in California knew that there was this politics, maybe this whole thing need not have even come up, right? Of course, it have been bad for us because we, we would have lost that kind of an opportunity. But at the same time, you know, so I felt that sometimes needs can completely change Right, and I know there's even in that NGO we had situations where uh, a, a new a new head of a particular department would come in. He'd want a new system developed. He'd say the old system is all bad, throw it out. So we developed this new system for him. Then after it took three years to develop the system, right? And and he left. That this old system was junked, right? So uh, so sometimes you find that. You uh, you know changing circumstances do change the, the need for having systems, and of course there are cases where people have come and said, "No, for me this is not important in the system, but the other thing is." When we the previous manager wanted something else, right? So we had to shift things around, shift the priorities of the of the uh, features of the organi- of the system around, 
Yeah, so as I said, yes, you find that sometimes things do change drastically you know, as, as you go along, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, thanks for taking me back on the memory lane. I had almost forgotten the time when we were the first project managers and we were kind of pretty much learning on the job with some unconventional approaches and all that. Maybe that's a topic for another day. But then, in uh, fact, Shiv, I think we, yeah. we remember that when we became project managers, we were not trained to become project managers. There was no training. Those days, there was nothing called project management training. Right? Or software project management training, was, there was no such concept. Right? There was project management training in the industrial sense, but nothing like software project management training. So we had to kind of learn as we kind of rolled along, you know. Right. You know, that triggered uh, another uh, thought, you know, which is, um, I remember in those days, you know, the computing resources were very scarce. Right. So we, you know, of course, in hindsight, you know, the games that we used to play even between the two of us to make sure that our teams get the prime time on the computer. Right. Uh, trying to uh, work in shifts and all that. Maybe some of those could have been avoided. Uh, if we knew that the customer was not using it. But then uh, on a, a little more um, software development related uh, point, uh, because the computing resources were scarce, uh, probably the due diligence that the team members you know, paid or I remember even when we were learning, we had to do desk checking of programs and all that. To today, you can on your desktop you know, fire off any number of compiles, builds, and all that, and then do things. So, do you see a change in the approach that people take to developing solutions today? Uh, just like you said that you know, the um, methodologies are somewhat cyclic. Uh, do you see any changes or going back to some of the the basic principles and practices? No, as I said, in the olden days, I remember when, when I first joined my, my first organization, we didn't even have a computer on our premises. And we had to go and use the computer of, of a sister organization, right? And uh, during that time, I remember, you know, we used to sit and write programs on these coding sheets, you know, those sheets with, it looks like a graph sheet, you know. So you write... Uh, uh, environment division, uh, what's a, some other procedure division, except on those little little boxes, right? Yeah, and, then write the whole, yeah, right? and then you would write, uh, the, the, as you said, we, we did a lot of desk checking to make sure the programs would run, right? And the advantage those days was that we wrote really structured code, mainly because we wanted to be able to do desk checking, right? We, I mean, if we did any, you know, thousands of go-tos, you know, from here to there, you would find that, you know, it's not easy to desk check, right? So where I think where computer resources are scarce, uh, you find that you do really good programming techniques to ensure that you are able to understand the program well. And therefore, what I found was that when you actually loaded this program onto a computer, it would run in two or three tries, right? Because we are, you have done a lot of checking already and your brain is work on thing before the computer could work on it, right? And, uh, but where when I went to the US and did some conversion program from, you know, from uh, CDC systems to a CDC environment to IBM environment, there, you know, one, when, when I started converting programs, COBOL programs, one, one environment to the other, 
Of course, there will be some errors due to the changes in environment. And to actually debug was actually a problem. And because those people had very high, uh, uh, very high computing resources, and uh, these programs are built over a long period of time. So, and you would have these large printouts, right? So you would start in the procedure division, go to the first paragraph and say, do this, do that, do that. Then, then if something, go to somewhere else. So you would search for the whole, in the, the whole printout. Uh, it's like a book, you know, go through and find out where that label is. And there, there'll be two or three sentences and it'll say, if something, go somewhere else, right? So uh, the lack of structured programming as systems built up and the initial structured programming that we did because there were no computing resources. That was a big contrast in those days, right? And as, this, as time passed and when you could do online, online programming, right? And online debugging and online compiling and running it, then things became much easier, right? Because then you could actually uh, understand and that's when we slowly started building this habit of, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, making mistakes and then correcting them right? by trial and error kind of approach rather than actual, real systematic coding. Right. So the when you had uh, enough computing resources at your at your uh, in your hands, you could actually write something. Does it work? It does not work. Therefore, you write something else. So the whole trial and error approach started uh, uh, once you had big computing resources at your uh, at your at your supply, you know. So that is, I think, that is the kind of uh, change that we found. Huh, that um, okay. This this is another question. Maybe just a simple answer. Now, is this the reason? This meaning the abundance of computing resources, one of the main factors why. The four GLs died because I know that you are one of the probably very few experts in four GLs, having you know, worked with the team that developed that and developing solutions and all that. Remember, link, right, right. So, did it go away because whatever benefits it had are now more easily possible, or you can do more things because of computing power being available to everyone? Um, that could be one reason. The other reason I, I think is that, see, uh, these 4GLs like Link and Mapper, right? They all actually addressed, <coughs> addressed uh, some of the things that you do in the background for the environment, right? For example, in COBOL, you have to actually code the environment division, the data division, the uh, uh, what's the other, some, all those various divisions before you actually came to the uh, to the procedure division right and uh, so these 4gls actually made sure that you didn't have to worry about any of those uh, background things right but most of the the actual if you had any complicated logic that would still be need to be done the other thing it did in those days was actually the 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 design of the screen right those days screen design was a major task if you didn't have a 4GL. So this thing actually made screen design very easy, right? And uh, and also it, it, it kind of uh, uh, brought out some of the standard ways accounting systems worked, right? So, you know, you had these master files and these transactions. So some of those things were made easy, right? 
So those standard things for uh, classical application systems were made slightly easier because the environment, because of some standardization, right? But later on, we found that most of the uh, some of those things are already available in the operating system environment itself as time time went on, right? So the whole need of a 4 gl kind of collapsed, right? And nowadays, if you look at programming, most of the programming is done for systems kind of work rather than application kind of work. Most of the application kind of work, uh, I think all these modules already available in, in, in the open in the open uh, uh, environment. So you can just pull things in and do things, right? But some of these systems kind of thing, you uh, work, you, you really need to uh, develop your own systems, right? And that is where I think uh, the whole uh, depth of 4 gls happened, right? Because you uh, the whole, whole need for them didn't kind of die away. Of course, as I said, the, the abundance of uh, resources also helped. But uh, in, the, in the olden days, I think these 4GL creator systems, even though the, the developers of the 4GL claimed that they were more efficient, it may not happen. It would have taken more uh, uh, computer resources to run such systems than, uh, than uh, uh, if you were to code it in a 3GL. Mm. Okay. In the last uh, half an hour or so, we covered a lot of ground. Right. We talked about changing user requirements, changing technologies, changing ways in which you know people have been developing and all that. Now, with all this, my last question for this session is, is a CIO's job challenging and satisfying or is it something that is not aspirational? Because we also have a lot of people who are aspiring to be CIOs among our listenership. And yes, CIO's job is really challenging. You know, main, especially if it's an international organization, right? Because you're mainly uh, dealing with the strategy of, of of the international organization rather than you know, just software development alone. And also, if, if a real CIO, if he or she is taken seriously enough by the organization to form part of the organizational strategic teams, right? In many cases, CIO is not taken seriously enough, right? You'll find that many a case CIO is just as, as a computer fixer kind of guy, right? But if the CIO becomes part of the, uh, CIO is not reporting into the, uh, into the HR head or the finance head, but the CIO is part of the directorate team of, of the organization and is actually feeding into the strategy of the organization. Then I think the CIO can, is certainly very a very important person in the whole organization right and now in this digital age of course the, the importance of the c i don't know i don't know whether you can actually call them the cio now because now it, 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 many of these uh, organizations are developing systems for the computer to be used by the computer to be used in the computer right so uh, everybody is a cio now and with these new agile approaches if it's self organization etc i think you know Maybe the role of the CIO will will kind of fuse with that of the CEO. And the CIO and the CEO are the same person. You find that in many organizations, you find that is true. And then you also have something called the CTO now, you know, the chief technology officer, right? So the questions of what is the CIO, what is the CTO? I mean, it's always been used kind of uh, interchangeably, right? 
So all those things come in. So I think, yes, uh, uh, now I think uh, there is also this concept of chief, uh, I think chief digital officer, right? Uh, so yeah. I think people, people aspiring to... Yeah, chief data officer, chief digital officer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 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 I think people trying to become these, I think it's good for them because in this current uh, kind of industry, the whole organization is is all is some kind of computer. Yeah, you know. So, yeah. So I think it's 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 good for people to aspire to that kind of thing rather than the traditional CIO kind of role, which is a chief data officer kind of thing. Not data, but chief, what is it called? Head of the data, what's it? Computing data department. Yeah, MIS department. MIS, that kind of, yeah. So once you get past that, I think it's it's a good good aspirational role. Mm, thanks. Good to hear. It's very reassuring. Even though the part when you said the organization of the computer reminded me of Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then is it cyclic or is it more squarish? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, see, o- over time, I think maybe some 300, 400 years from now, I don't know how the whole thing will be. And of course, we won't be around to see it, right? I think the whole the thing may change, you know. Maybe the whole of human uh, brains will kind of uh, fuse together into one gigantic brain, you know, talking telepathically across, you know, through some waves, across, uh, across dimensions to, you know, to each other. Maybe there, of course, there'll be people on Mars and and maybe on the moon, right? So we don't know. I mean, how things will change, right? Yeah. So let's. Yeah, so. I, th- I think that is fine because uh, we are recording this at the turn of the year and the time for predictions and futuristic expectations and all that. So that is wonderful, Parmo. Uh, very nice talking to you. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, Shiv. It was great talking to you. I think I enjoyed this. I also learned some things which I didn't know myself, you know, and things that came out uh, without, you know, even my thinking about them. So it's good. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Bye. If you like the show, and would like to share your experiences with the community or know someone else who might want to do that, please get in touch with us at podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com. That is podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com.